Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Today we have a special, special panelist, and uh, she has brought a guest as well. And this is Monica Ireland Karras. She is the veteran benefits attorney with Tabak Law Firm, uh, LLC, based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. How are you doing, uh, Monica? Um, I know you have your special guest you're going to introduce, and you're going to be talking about Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Tabak Law Firm, successfully representing veterans across the USA who are denied their benefits claims. Thank you for your service to our veterans. Again, I'm Attorney Karras, and I have um, a special guest with me today. Uh, his name is Daniel, and he is a United States Army veteran. Um, he's currently in law school at Marquette. Cool. Uh, former former colleague of mine at Tabak Law, really just um, a smart, scholarly gentleman and uh, just a, a real great guest to have on. So welcome, Daniel. Excellent. Hello. How y'all doing today? Great, great. <laughs> Good. Thanks for having me. So um, as Dr. Arnold introduced me, um, I am a veterans benefits attorney. I am based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I do Veterans Benefits Law nationally, and I help veterans every day get the benefits that they deserve. Uh, again, my number is 414-375-1735. Um, I thought today we would do um, a little bit, um, I wanted to talk with Daniel um, because he is so insightful on so many things, and he's such a great conversationalist, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what it's like being black in the military and, and, and how that impacts you and whether it impacts you at all. So, Daniel, um, when did you enlist in the Army? Uh, 2009. I started talking um, with recruiters at the end of 2008, around uh, December time. And then uh, there was actually a competition between the Army and the Air Force. And the Air Force was like, oh, we can't send you off until June. So I went across the hallway and talked to the Army recruiters. Like, oh, like three weeks. How's that sound? I was like, all right, cool. Let's go three weeks. So... Uh, so, so where did you do basic? Uh, down in Fort Benning in Georgia. Okay. Okay. And then you were overseas, is that correct? Mm-hmm. I did a tour in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2011. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, so what, and what was your, uh, your MOS when you were over there? Uh, 11 Bravo infantrymen. I'm doing a bunch of other stuff, but, you know, generally an infantryman. Yeah. What 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 made you decide to go into the military? What was your deciding factor? Ooh, you know, it's probably a lot of things, to be honest with you. Um, talking with my parents um, when I was younger, it seemed like the type of thing that uh, parents would punish their kids with. And so I got into ROTC as a freshman in high school, kind of a way to make sure that I was staying on the right track uh, in my parents' eyes. And I turned out to like it. And it was an Air Force JROTC. And uh, that's what made me want to join the Air Force at first. And then, you know, things happened that changed my mind about what branch I wanted to go in besides just being able to go sooner. Uh, and then I got to talk to uh, 
a recruiter who really kind of convinced it. And, you know, I think for everybody in my generation, um, 9-11 is a huge influence for joining the military. Uh, I, I don't know. I always like to look at, at the generations and see how they came to be in the military, uh, whether by conscription or by, by volunteer and all that type of stuff. And I genuinely think that we have a, a lot of uh, volunteers compared to some of the other times. Um, and I don't know. Maybe it's just for love of country. So. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. The way to say it. That's great. Dr. Arnold, what made you join the military? Oh, well, I, I joined the military while I was in medical school, and I, the way that the Vietnam veterans were being treated, this made me feel disgusted. And um, my father was in, a, uh, in the Army, you know, back in World War II. Um, he was actually in an incendiary unit. So when I joined the military, it was just really pushing me towards uh, looking at that. And I, actually, I was on the cusp like he was, uh, like Daniel was. I was looking at the Navy and then looking at the Army. And when I went to the Navy recruiter, they said, well, I said, well, well what, what kind of assignment can I get? And they said, well, we can put you into a nuclear submarine and put you under a polar ice cap for six months. And I walked right across the hall nope. to the <laughs> Army. <laughs> Wow, very similar. How funny. (laughs) So I wanted to talk a little bit. um, You know, we keep hearing the slogan, Black history is our history. And and I love that. That's so true. It is all of our history. Um, And I I think everybody's experience in the military is a little bit different. Um, Sometimes race plays a really big role, and sometimes it doesn't play any role at all. And I was just wondering, Daniel, what, what are your feelings? What was your experience with this? Uh, my experience with race in the military, are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a really hard question to answer, you know, because on some, on some level, uh, you try to ignore things that might be, um, really lumped into racism now, you know, like passive aggressive comments and, and microaggressions and stuff like that. Um, and you're taught to let it be water off a duck's back. Um, so undoubtedly there are those, but on the same time, I think, um, that's probably the first community of people where I got to understand and accept what it meant to be black and not from like a stereotypical mindset. You know what I mean? Um, living in Milwaukee, the places that I went to in Milwaukee, I didn't, I wasn't afforded that, you know, type of positive black role model. And then going in the army, you see a whole bunch of people that are young, uh, looking back at it, when I was there, they were old, ancient, 30 years old is, is a dinosaur, basically, and here I am at 30 now. But anyway, uh, and looking up to those people who are, you know, in their late 20s and early 30s um, who are, who look at least somewhat similar to me, um, it kind of gives you some type of encouragement because it's like, oh, maybe I can do that someday, you know? And I think, um, I think even in that, they see you uh, and they see themselves in you, and so they want to build you up too. And so I think that's nice, and I think, well, I was in the Army. I probably focused on that a lot more than I focused on, on any of the negatives that existed. Um, and I'm not saying that they weren't there. I'm there. I can think back to any number of racist jokes, if you will, uh, that became common. And I remember being in basic training um, and, and having a problem with it. We actually had a guy who <clears throat> started being, I don't know, I think he did it to get out of the military, but he started being really racist to just... Um, for no reason, started singing like the Battle Hymn of the Republic and stuff like that. And that was shocking because that was maybe two and a half weeks into basic training that he started doing that. And by a month and a half, two months in, he was kicked out. So at first I thought that was going to be the military. I thought it was going to be a bunch of like racist, excuse me, white boys from the South doing a whole bunch of racist white boy things from the South thing. Uh, but it didn't end up being that way. Once I got to my unit, 
and things started being like the real military, uh, things I think changed. And I think it's really, I don't know, it's, it's a mix, you know, it, it's a really good cross section of American society. You got people from all walks of life, um, in the military. And I think, I think it's better for that. So. That's great. <clears throat> That's great. <clears throat> Dr. Arnold, what were your experiences like? Oh, well, you know, uh, you know, being African-American and going into the military, especially, you know, as a physician, uh, you know, I, I actually went in as a second lieutenant, you know, um, and then, uh, you know, progressed, you know, to, to uh, being a colonel. But during that time period, you know, um, I, I learned that there were good people and bad people on every walk of life, <laughs> that there are, you know, people that you can trust and people you can't trust. And uh, people who were, had that kind of background where they were, um, you know, mostly, you know, you know racially motivated, uh, they, it sort of comes out. It was kind of interesting because on the post, many times you were walking around in your uniform, of course, you know, so you had your rank displayed and everyone could see your name. Uh, but when you had that downtime, that was really when I started noticing more is when I went into plain clothes and was, you know, working working in the same kind of um, world that I thought I was in, you know, being with my, you know, with an officer's rank or walking as a captain or a major or lieutenant colonel, colonel. And when you go to, um, you know, those places where they can't identify that, then you start to see a little bit more of uh, how you're being approached as a, in an individual. So the uniform, if you were in, like, you know, jeans and a shirt, <laughs> that you know, you would be sort of tr- treated a little bit differently um, than if you were in your uniform and they could actually see your rank. Uh, and so I think that those things are there, <clears throat> the subconscious level at least. Uh, you know, and as, as, as um, it was being mentioned by Daniel, the, the microaggressions and, you know, those kinds of things are always there in the background. But um, when it comes to actually getting treatment, that's another issue. You know, so when we go to the VA and the way that um, you're looked upon as being African-American, there's always a modicum of suspicion that you can't really have an injury. You're, you're faking it or you're doing something along those lines. And that, you know, you see, a, you know, a white counterpart, they'll say, oh, you know, I have a uh, you know, problem with uh, lifting my shoulder. Oh, we're so sorry. We're, you know, and you get taken care of and they sort of get processed in a different way than, you know, than you would if you were African-American. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a suspicion. And that's, that has to go with the entire medical system, you know, how people are being treated when they get, you know, emergency care. Uh, we just had, a, you know, a doctor die in Indiana who um, was actually a physician, and they would not listen to her. And she ended up uh, dying, videotaped the whole thing, (laughs) uh, because they wouldn't uh, take her complaint seriously. So I think that's part of what's going on as well, yeah. That is so interesting to me, because that's something I would not have thought of. Um, And and that's, I think, the reason we need to have conversations like this. You know, I I really, um, I have many veterans that were in the military, that had some really bad experiences. I think us coming from the Midwest, um, and sometimes when you have to go down south, it's kind of a different <laughs> environment altogether. I know <clears throat> my own parents had that experience um, in North Carolina that they were just oh, in another wow. world, you know? So um, that's very interesting to me. Daniel, do you feel that way with, with your uh, interactions with the VA? Uh, I can't say that I have. I mean, I'm not oblivious to, to 
people around my same age having or feeling that certain way. Um, but that seems to be something that the younger the veteran, the less experienced it is. Uh, and I think that's probably a positive trend. You know, it's, it's indicative that we're going away from, from bad practices and going towards something where we feel a little bit more equal when we go inside the VA. And that's probably about how I feel. Um, I know in certain areas, though, uh, if you're talking about drug treatment or if you're talking about um, mental health problems, it does still feel like that a lot, especially if you're not using uh, the VA-specific services, but maybe like a VSO or somebody like that that works closely with the VA. Um, it feels like, it, it feels like you know, like you said, it, it's like it's somehow your fault that you're in the situation that you're in when it's, it's likely not your fault. And I think that's, that's a, a problem underlying a lot of things in this country is people just assume that you put yourself in the position that you're in and they take no account of what happened in the past for you individually or for, you know, your entire cross-section of life. So, uh, and I think that's definitely very evident at the VA, maybe not as much now as it used to be, but it's still there. So one of the things that um, I wanted to mention just quickly in this is, you know, I deal with a lot of veterans that they de- they dealt with, you know, racial disparity and um, slurs and terrible things, especially, you know, in the 70s and 80s, especially our Vietnam era vets. Um, I would like to say it has gotten better, but I obviously can't attest to that myself. Um, but there's a fine line between what is acceptable I, I, I strike that nothing is acceptable, but there's a fine line between what the military does and what happens when someone actually, it becomes a trauma, right? It becomes a trauma because you are looked at or spoken to, or even sexual traumas happen. And and that is something that is um, compensable by the VA. If you now have a mental health issue, um, because you were treated so poorly, that is something that the VA needs to look at and take accountability for, that that was how our veterans were treated either 20 years ago or 10 years ago or yesterday. Um, so, you know, there is a line between people, like you just said, Daniel, rolling off your back and it having a serious impact on you psychologically. So that is something that is compensable through the VA, if you have a mental health issue that is directly linked to the way you were treated based on your race or color in the military. So that's my selfless plug right there, I guess, is that you can be compensated if you, in fact, have a mental health problem based on the way you were treated in the military. So that's something to just keep in mind. Um, You know, again, as I want to have these conversations because I don't know and, and I want to be educated on the things that, you guys are telling me um, it means so much. So thank you so much for your insight on all of this. Um, I, I think I think we can spread it far and wide and people can understand a little bit better. <laughs> I know we're running out of time. And <laughs> like I said um, earlier, I think that Daniel is just a brilliant human being, so I have a question for him. Thanks. <laughs> Black historical figure who means something of importance to you, who would you say? Uh, you know... <laughs> you sent me an email with this question, and it was the last question in the email, and I read it, and I was like, oh, man, I, I kind of hope we don't make it that far because I don't know if I have a good answer, and I feel like any answer I would give um, might be a little bit cliched, but uh, I honestly, man, for me, it will say maybe it's not cliched, but maybe it is, uh, and I was talking to my girlfriend Abigail about it today. Um, I, I'd probably have to say President Obama just because of the age I was when he got elected president, and um, being the president is – 
not so much of a secret of mine, but it's definitely something that I aspire to be. I think that there's a lot of good that that office can do, and I don't think that we always get the greatest person in that office. Uh, and I think um, when the time comes, I can do a, a remarkable job. And he was kind of that um, that that torchbearer, if you will. Same with Kamala Harris right now with Vice President Harris. Um, it's it's yeah. a wonderful thing to see a person of color in the White House, and I don't know that personally there can be a better role model. I also thought about one of my platoon sergeants uh, because, you know, his lessons while I was in the military were they probably fell on deaf ears more often than not, but I can look back at him now and be like, man, I don't think I would be half the man I am right now if it weren't for him. Uh, and, you know, of course there's others, but I would have to say probably those two uh, will always stick out the most uh, in my head. So, Isn't Kamala Harris just great? I mean, it's just a wonderful, not even politician, but just human being. I mean, she's great. Um, I would have to add to your list Michelle Obama because I think Michelle Obama, she might have secretly been running that White House. I'm not real sure. (laughs) But I I mean, just a wonderfully smart, classy person. Um, Dr. Arnold, do you have anything to add? Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, you know, having come down the military road, um, the people that I really um, admire, because I don't think they got enough attention were the Tuskegee Airmen, um, you know, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, they, they really changed the world, Martin Luther King. Uh, they, they changed the way we think about each other and the world, and they asked us to go to a deeper level than what we're perceiving on the outside, and it was the content of the character. It was how do you act as a human being in this world, and what do you mean to other people? And, and so I think that that was really uh, one of the things that was really uplifting to me. Um, you know, uh, uh, Jesse Jackson is another person who, um, you know, is, you know, uh, you know, becomes pol- geopoliticized a lot and all that. But in essence, you know, when you start looking at the Rainbow Coalition and what its actual meaning is, you know, and how people are trying to keep your hope alive, uh, you know, my, my nephew actually just did a, a thing in school. And they gave him 75 speeches from 75 different people. And they asked him, pick one, and I want you to take a look at this. And he was down in Missouri, and he picked Jesse Jackson's speech about hope, keeping hope alive. And uh, he said that that's the one that resonated with him. And he's, he's like, in the, you know, he's in the uh, fifth grade now, sixth grade. <laughs> and he, you know, and he looked at that and said, wow. <laughs> This is something that I can really, especially right now with COVID going on and, you know, so b- making sure we keep ourselves, um, you know, in, in that realm. So, you know, we're, we're actually at the time right now, but I wanted to say one more time, pay back for the payback. You better call her, um, <laughs> you know, I'll give you a number really quickly one more time, <laughs> phone number. Sure. It's 414-375-1735, paybackattorneys.com. And I'm looking for Daniel be the next uh, person for the Supreme Court. It looks like he's on his path, his trajectory to go there. <laughs> and- isn't he? Isn't he? <laughs> okay. okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.